Welcome to the Law of Startups podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I am Joe Wallen. Thank you for being on the show. Today, we are lucky to have with us Mr. Michael Butler. Michael is the co-founder, uh, CEO, and chairman of Cascadia Capital. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Mike. So tell us, how long have you started Cascadia Capital in ni- what, 1990? 99. 99. You're making me feel old, Joe. You're making me feel old. <laughs> but you guys have had a wonderful, a wonderful run. You know, it, um, it's like any business. You have your ups and downs. But, you know, we persevered and, you know, we're a 16-year overnight success story. Yeah, 16-year overnight success story. Because right now you're 50 bankers or something. Yes. In yes. five cities or yes. four cities. Four or, cities. Mm-hmm. Correct. And, and you do, um, by the way, for, for folks who don't know Cascadia Capital, Cascadia Capital is an investment bank in Seattle. Correct. And you help a lot of companies on um, exits. Uh, both buy side and sell side representation. Yeah, correct. We we help companies sell themselves. We help them buy other companies. We help them raise capital, either equity or debt capital. We help them think about their capital structure and uh, make any adjustments necessary to that to that capital structure. In in essence, we serve as a as an intermediary between the suppliers of capital and the users of capital. The users of capital are are the independent companies. The suppliers of capital are corporations, private equity funds, growth funds, venture funds. So you're talking to the suppliers of capital a lot? Yes, every day. So what are they telling you right now? It's interesting. It depends what category of supplier of capital. The financial suppliers of capital, the growth equity funds, the venture funds, the private equity funds are slowing down just a little bit. They're being a bit more cautious. They've been very, very aggressive the last two, three, four years, and they're they're slowing down ever so slightly. However, corporations are very aggressively deploying capital, whether it's through investments in companies or acquiring companies. They are putting money to work, and they are putting money to work at very high valuations. So, to, just to, to kind of at a high level, you guys, um, you, you're out there trying to find out what people are looking to buy and then make connections between exactly. the folks that are that are trying to acquire companies in particular areas or make investments and trying to, to help them find the companies and, and vice versa. Sure. So um, who, who are your clients typically? Are your clients typically the companies that are being sold or, or do you uh, do you represent f- folks on both sides? We typically represent the companies that are being sold or looking for capital. So our client base is either entrepreneur-backed companies, so a lot of entrepreneur-backed tech companies, or family-owned businesses. Hmm. We typically do not represent companies that have institutional capital or are big public companies. So when do folks come to talk to you? These people are, are, are they've, they've either, I don't know, they hit a certain degree of maturity, or maybe they feel like they've gone as far as they can go at the size or with the, in, the, in the vehicle that they're in, and they say, you know, maybe it's time to t- start talking to an investment banker about exits, or, or, or w- when is the right time for people to come to you? Well, let me let me step back. It, it, when people come to us, is really determined by the experience of the entrepreneur. The more inexperienced entrepreneur or family business owner comes to us when they're ready to transact, when they're ready to sell their business, or they think they need capital. The experienced entrepreneur or family owner, the one who's been through this before, comes to us long before. They need capital or they're contemplating an exit. They, they want to start a relationship with us. They want to explain their business to us. 
They want us to tell them where buyers and investors see value. So if you have a tech company and, and you've got you know a few products, you're looking at different markets, an experienced entrepreneur will say to us, well, wh- where do buyers see value? If I go after this customer segment, will that, will that be valuable to a potential acquirer or an investor? If I focus on this product area, will that have more value than, than this other product to a buyer? And so what they try to do is, is take what the market is telling them and use that in part to, to help guide their strategy. Yeah, that makes really, that makes really good sense. So these are these are this would be a, sort of just a pure advisory arrangement of some kind. It's not even that. We do that, for, that's part of what we do, yeah. right? We like to we like to say we're long term greedy, not short term greedy. So we we invest in relationships, and these are non contractual relationships. They're they're non economic relationships. We get to know companies, and we help them think through issues. We help give them information and good data to make good decisions. Now, our hope is when they're ready to do a transaction, we're their first call or their only call, um, but that's a risk we take. So we, we spend a lot of time pro bono helping companies think through issues, giving them information that helps them better determine the direction of their business. Yeah, that sounds really, that sounds really like a good thing for somebody to come talk to you about. Um, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, in terms of like most companies, most startup companies are looking for some kind of exit. And one of those ways to exit is, is being sold to a larger company. If they don't have experience, if they haven't been at the larger company or gone through one of these transactions before, you know, how better to learn what it is that people are looking for in, a, in an acquisition? You know what I mean? If, if you're trying to build something to sell, it certainly doesn't hurt to find out what the buyers want. Um, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's, it sounds like a fantastic resource and a, and a good reason to reach out. And for us, it's helpful because the big companies call us and they say, okay, tell us what young companies are out there doing interesting things so we can keep them on our radar screens. When, when a, a, a Fortune 500 company calls Morgan Stanley or calls Goldman Sachs, one of the big investment banks, you know, they, they're, they're getting information about big businesses, right? Because Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs focus on big businesses. When they call Cascadia Capital, they're looking for information on those emerging businesses, those younger businesses that are, that are on the cutting edge of, of new trends or new things in the market. So um, it helps us. It really helps us when we know companies and see what's going on in the early stages of the market and, and communicate that to the private equity funds, the venture funds, and particularly the corporate acquirers. Yeah, so, so since our, our audience is largely entrepreneurs, um, you know, what are some of the things that, that buyers are looking for? I mean, at a high level, obviously, you know, it's different for every industry, but are there any tips that you can give folks on how they can better prepare themselves to be sold and what, what so, people are looking for? Yeah, I think it all starts with product. We um, have had several transactions recently where the product and by extension, the people were what interested the acquirer. So we, we recently sold uh, a company called One Energy Systems to Dusan Heavy Industries out of South Korea. And, you know, One Energy was an early stage company. They didn't have a lot of revenue, didn't have a lot of customers. They had some wonderful, wonderful engineers. They had very, very good technology and they had a, they had a good product. But they weren't, they didn't have the sales force, they didn't have the marketing to sell to the utility sector. It's a long sales cycle. Dusan said, we don't care that, that you're not good at selling or you can't sell the utilities. We have those channels. We're very interested in your product, your technology, and your people. And I'm seeing that 
time and time again where good people, good products get sold. That's interesting because I always think – so in that case, it sounds like your the strategy would be you're thinking about building a, a product. I mean maybe this isn't the plan from the beginning, but but the idea is build a product that might fit nicely into someone else's product line, uh, someone that already has customers and a big sales channel and is constantly on the lookout for how they can find new things to sell to their customers – um, yes. And then, you know, if for, you know, for, if for whatever reason you're having a hard time finding those customers yourself, um, just try to try to don't do anything that causes your product to, to clash too, too uh, prominently with like the features of, of the folks you want to possibly acquire you. That, that's, maybe, that's, maybe try not to overlap or something like that. Yeah, that, that is well said. The market has changed a bit four, five, six, seven years ago. Uh, the larger corporate acquirers were looking for fully functioning businesses that were doing a lot of revenue. They could just plug in, and and Wall Street would 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 cheer because they were adding a lot of revenue and a lot of profitability. The market has migrated to what we call tuck-ins. The corporate acquirers are looking to buy companies that they can tuck in, and that means that they have a product, they have people, they have a service that they can put into their. Uh, into their hands of the their sales force and, and marketing staff and and drive revenue that way. So the market has migrated to these tuck-in type of acquisitions where corporate acquirers are buying people and technology and products, not necessarily revenue and EBITDA. But that that feels like what Cisco's been doing forever. Yes, Cisco has been doing that for a long time. And I think, you know, honestly, a lot of other corporate Corporate acquirers have seen that that's a very, very successful strategy. Yeah, yeah I think everyone looked at Cisco and said, well, we should just be like that. Exactly. <laughs> for, you know, for, um, for a corporate acquirer to spend 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 million on a company that might be doing a few million in revenue on the surface sounds crazy, but it's not. Because they say, I can take that product in the hands of my sales force. I can generate 100 to $200 million of revenue a year. So it makes sense. And, and what we do is, we put ourselves in the shoes of the corporate acquirer and say, what is the value of this to the corporate acquirer? And that begins to shape how, how valuation is, is, is settled on a, between the, the, the seller and the buyer. I'm curious, in those product-focused uh, product deals, how often do the folks that are buying the product uh, already have some kind of reseller arrangement with the, uh, with the folks that they're buying? I wonder if it's something where they're, they're picking up something new. Or if it's something where they're saying, well, we've been reselling this product that someone else is for a long time and it's doing really well and, and it's time to maybe bring it in-house. Yeah, the reseller uh, arrangement is the, the definite minority of deals that we see. But we, we are encouraging companies establish a relationship so that the large corporate is reselling your product. They get to know you, they get to know your product, and they see the demand for it and they're willing to pay a higher price. I think there should be more deal structured that way, right? Where there's already a reseller agreement in place, and the M and A becomes very natural. But I guess the only the, the only downside would be if that if for some reason the reseller agreement uh, kind of uh, eliminates the necessity for the acquisition. Like if your if your goal is to be acquired, and uh, you know you don't want to give you don't want to give away everything that the company wants by giving them a real favorable reseller agreement. If you can if you can make them buy, you yeah, for the, the deals have right. exactly that, and that's where I think small companies need to be strategic about who they partner with and the terms of those partnerships so they don't um, they don't lock themselves in. We always like to say if you uh, you know if you give a corporate acquirer the milk they won't buy the cow. Yeah. And so you, you need to make sure that you know they're still left wanting more after the agreements in place. 
Nice. Nice. Any other tips for folks? Like, so let's say you're, let's say you're trying to build the, uh, the profitable side of things and, 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 uh, and go about it that way. Are there, are there any tips about how to build a business that's more attractive to, to acquirers in that, in that context? Or is it really just about profitability? Like if you can, if you're going to have a healthy business, people will be interested. I think even a health, healthy business, people are interested. We also see acquirers looking, when they're looking at businesses that are generating profitability and revenue, looking for businesses that have some type of recurring business model. So uh, a SaaS model, right, where there's a monthly subscription or a yearly subscription are definitely more highly valued than companies that are selling products on an episodic basis. So to the extent there is, you know, an ongoing relationship with the customer, um, it's valued more highly by the investor or acquirer. Yeah, I've heard rumors that that in, in the terms of the valuation of a company, that the difference between a SaaS model and a you know one time sales software model can be a ten x difference in value. Yes. I don't know if I don't know if that's accurate that is, or not, but that is true. We, yeah, that's pretty we, incredible. Yeah, we see SaaS models going anywhere from five to ten times revenue. We see the episodic, you know, um, license sale at one to one and a half times revenue. That is a dramatic difference in in valuation. Yeah, I mean, I have a, a software business, and we're in, kind of in the process of trying to shift it. It's a consumer-facing meditation and relaxation uh, product for the iPhone and Android, and it's a, it's kind of in the past we've sold it as a, as a one-time purchase or in-app purchase where you buy tracks for the different meditations, and we're trying to shift toward a subscription model, um, not necessarily because of trying to trying to get acquired, but just because it seems like a much healthier business model. There's a reason. There's a reason why those businesses are valued higher. Exactly. It's, it's predictable revenue. It's non-lumpy. It's got a lot of, of good aspects and, and the market values that highly. So when we're talking to, you know, a company that's thinking about business models, that's the type of information we try to give them. We, we try to talk about business models and product and segments and focus and where acquirers see value. And that's, that's a perfect example. If somebody is thinking about a business model for their business and they can do either, you know, they need to know that the SaaS model is is valued, you know, seven to 10 times what the license model is. That's good information that we try to give companies. Yeah, I kind of wonder if there's opportunities there. I mean, probably not for folks like, you know, our, our audience is a bit more on the entrepreneur side, but, um, you know, for folks with capital or private equity to, to buy more traditional software firms, try to convert them to a SaaS business and then resell yeah, buy them. For one X and buy, yeah, buy for that, one X that, and sell that, for 10 That X. is absolutely being done. It's a pretty simple, I mean, I, I don't want to say it's simple to make the switch, but it's a very, uh, you know, it's, it's a binary change. You make the one yeah. change in the business and you see it through and then, you know, hopefully see an improvement what, in value. Um, what investors are telling us is that on the surface, it appears to be a simple switch. In reality, it's much more complex. It's a cultural change. Mm-hmm. The technology infrastructure needs to be different. That it's it's actually more challenging in, in practice to, to make that switch. Um, so they're getting better at it. They're learning how to do it. Um, but it's not. It, it's easier on paper than than an actual practice. Yeah, I could see that. Particularly, uh, well, I mean, there's changes to the way the product works, but then there's also, you know, you've got to transition a customer base to feel, you know, yes. to uh, to accepting it. And so, like, when I think about the shift that, that I'm getting ready to make, you know, I, I, ha- I had to go into it with the understanding that a very large percentage of my customers are probably going to be pretty upset about the change and um, and that I just have to hope that, that a large enough portion of them stay and that the fact that the, those customers, once they've stayed, are going to be valuable enough that they'll offset the folks that, that you know, that get upset and leave and that, and that the new customers going forward will just adopt the new paradigm and, and everything will move forward 
Um, but it is a, it's going to be an interesting transition. I, I imagine it's not as easy for folks as, uh, as just, you know, changing, changing their website and charging people a different price. And so that argues that an entrepreneur in the early stages should know the difference in valuation. So if they decide to go that way, they can structure their company early to, to have that business model as opposed to trying to change it later. And again, yeah. that's the type of information we try to try to give people. Just date. We think uh, smart people with data will make good decisions. So, do you guys publish publish quarterly newsletter or anything like that, or is that something we kind of infrequently do? Sometimes do. Yeah, to be honest, we have good intentions. <laughs> the execution is spotty. Yeah, it's so hard to do that. But you know, I guess I guess we have brought is- in a full full time marketing person though, so we're we're helpful that she can kind of take our are rambling thoughts yeah. and coherently put them on paper. So we've made the first step. Yeah. Well, so this, yeah, it's funny how, so I remember the dot-com, you know, bubble bursting and then, you know, just sort of like a, like a period of darkness. And then, and then it just seems like this, the software as a service recurring revenue model was sort of like the saving, yeah. you know, it saved everybody. It's like, Oh, now we know, we know how to not have that happen to us again. That horrible thing that happened to us. Yeah. 2000 or whatever it was. But I, I, I do wonder, like, what's, what, what's the next thing? What's beyond SaaS? I mean, what, what's the next business model which is going to be interesting to people? Well, so it, it's, it's this whole sharing or, or outsourced business model, whether it's cloud or whether it's Uber, the, the more efficient use of resources. Gotcha. Right? Um, is, is really where we think things are going. And any company that uses technology to enable a more efficient or uptime use of, of resources is getting a lot of interest from, from investors. And that could be something like Uber. It can be the cloud. There's just a lot of different permutations of that. And, and we see investors really focused on efficient resource utilization. Right. So just look around and see un- underutilized resources and say, hey, how can I use technology to make that more utilized? Absolutely. It's, it's really... Um, it's amazing how many underutilized resources there are. And, uh, you know, that entrepreneur that just sees that opportunity right. um, can, can really, really make a great, great business out of it. I can definitely see that. I mean, uh, the, uh, I mean, the hospitality industry, I mean, that's just one place where you look sure. and see, wow, there's lots of uh, automobiles. Absolutely. Tons of hundreds of millions of dollars in value just sitting around doing nothing. Doing Exactly. Doing doing nothing. Doing nothing. I can make money with that car in the garage right now rather than paying for it to sit in the garage probably. Yep. Yeah, the automobile thing is interesting. We talked. I've talked about this on the podcast before. I've got this kind of weird idea kicking around in my head about what what's going to happen to the value of these automobile companies once once the the um, automobiles that are out there start getting utilized to a higher degree. Like so, the, the, that concept is you've got all these cars that are spend most of their time parked, um, mm-hmm. and that's the reason why things like Uber and ride sharing are so valuable and, and so interesting. But but what happens if if we move to like an automated car, automated driving, and you end up with in a situation where cars are being shared by more people? It it you know if one car is able to serve twice as many people as it used to be able to serve because it's not sitting all the time, that seems to indicate there'd be half as many cars necessary. And so does that does that like dramatically change the demand for cars and and um, and what does that do to the automobile industry? Unless they're going to raise the price or somehow increase their profit margins, you'd assume that all those companies would somehow suffer as a result. Um, it's yeah, just something that, that I think about. There are reverberations all up and down the value chain for any of these disruptions. It was interesting. I, um, we just sold a, um, a transportation company in, in Tacoma. They transport oil and gas. Great, great deal. And I was talking to one of their senior executives, and they said, 
you know what is the the largest employer of males in the United States or what what type of businesses? And I said, no. He goes, transportation businesses like ours, right? The transportation sector um, employs more American males between the ages of 21 and 60 than than any other any other industry. And what are they goes, doing? They're just driving, driving cars, driving, driving, driving trucks, trucks, driving, driving trucks, trucks, driving, driving cars. Trucks. And he said, I shudder. I shudder to think oh, what yeah. could happen to society if we have driverless vehicles. He says, can you imagine the unemployment this country would face if and when driverless vehicles come to be? He said, you, you would have millions and millions and millions of, of young and middle-aged and older men without jobs. And he said the, the, the society, the societal disruption would be nothing that's, that's ever been seen before. And so, you know, there's, there's a yin and yang to all these, these, these innovations, right? There's, I hate to say it, but there's often winners and losers. And so it's something that I think, you know, we need to think broadly about because, you know, change um, can be good, but can, it can also dislocate folks. Yeah, it'll be interesting because it seems like there's no question that that uh, automation of things like that in- involves like a, a massive increased efficiency of society as a whole. Mm-hmm. All those people that were doing those jobs can now end up doing something else that hopefully generates some value that wasn't otherwise being generated. But you're right, uh, like in, at a local at a local level or an individual level, it seems like it's going to cause a lot of there's going to be a big shift. And um, so so at, at a global level, you got you got a positive outcome, but. Some people may be really negatively affected, uh, if especially if they're not um, open to change or they're not, they don't adapt well to change. Yeah. You know, another industry we see going through that that change is the oil and gas sector. They traditionally have employed lots and lots and lots of people to drive out to the field and check this well or 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 do a do a menial task, and they're able to employ those people and pay them well because they're making so much money. Now that the price of air, of the bar- a barrel of oil has plummeted, they are substituting technology for people. And we got a call from um, a, a large oil and gas company that we know quite well. And they said, uh, what are you seeing interesting in the, the medical technology area? We said, well, why, why, why are you asking? They said, you know, we, we know that certain technology that has very uh, minute cameras that allow, you know, to, 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 to look into, into somebody's body, right, and, and see what's going on without, without operating. And we think we could take that technology and put it down oil wells. And we don't need a person to drive out and, and, and physically check the oil wells. We'll, we'll have these cameras at the wells wirelessly transmit data back to the, the, the head office. And, you know, we, we, we can lower our staffing costs dramatically. So you're, you're seeing it. You're seeing it. As soon as an industry comes under margin pressure, they are looking for ways to replace um, human capital with technology. Yeah, Internet of Things, that's going to be a, an amazing, interesting thing to watch. Yes, we are, we, are, um, we are seeing a lot of interest in that sector. People are still struggling to define it. It means different things to different people, but it, it's all about smart resources, right? How do I make dumb iron smart? How do, how do we do more with less? Right. And it's uh, that that. Resource utilization, that that trend of doing more with less, 
permeates all, all industries when you think about it. And the Internet of, of Things is is you know, at the forefront of that. Yeah, it's a fun. It's a fun. There's lots of fun applications for Internet of Things. Um, and the, Mike, have you done any deployments in that area? Have you are you tinkering with that right now? No, I don't have anything active going on. I, I keep up like so a while back. Um, Apple released sort of an iBeacon framework. This has got to be a few years. It's been. It's probably been longer than it seems. Um, but but so there's some technology that exists on the Apple framework to sort of set up low, low energy Bluetooth devices that can talk to the phone. Um, and I've looked into that a bit. Um, I've looked at like, you know, tinkering in my yard, trying to figure out how to automate sprinkler systems and things like that just as a as a project. But no, nothing from a business standpoint. Um, it's pretty interesting. I'd, I'd say that what made you think of the Internet of Things on that was that that oil well example um, where a lot of times people think of Internet of Things as being kind of like consumer products or you know, refrigerators that have the internet, but, um, it seems like probably more likely it's, it's a lot about, um, distributed sensors and cameras and things. So, so that, like you said, people don't have to go to the well to look at it. They can just get a notice if something goes wrong because it's yeah. being monitored. Yeah. The restaurant owner just wants to know if his fridge just went down at 3am or something when he's, you know, who knows? And a lot, I mean, it's that kind of thing. Yeah. One of the biggest opportunities that investors see today is technology to the agricultural sector. The agricultural sector is a very, very large sector in in America, but traditionally it's shunned the use of, of technology. Now with a new generation of, of farmers, the, 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 the sons and daughters you know, who are well-educated coming into the business, the technology is rapidly coming into that sector. It can be sensors, right, to automate watering. It can be drone technology to to take a look at the field and show where you know one one acreage might might need more um, fertilizer than another. And so, even in probably the sector that was most resistant to technology, you're seeing technology innovation. So it's it's um, it's permeating all all industries and, and all sectors in the uh, in the American economy. So say you've got a business and you're, you're not thinking about selling it. You're just chugging along. You're trying to build something that you want to keep. Uh, and then someone shows up and makes an offer. What, what's, what's the, what, what should you do? We see that a lot. I would say in the last three, four years, probably 30, 40% of our clients come to us and say, I've got an offer. What should I do? I think the, the first thing you should do is find out from an independent party what your business is worth. And talk to an investment bank or talk to a lawyer who knows an investment bank or talk to a commercial bank who knows an investment banker and get a really accurate read on the valuation of, of your business. And then um, try to reconcile that with the bid you received. Our, our view is competition forces people to pay their highest price. And we, we like to make sure that if somebody makes an offer for a business they know there's other competitors out there looking to, to buy that business. I, I've been doing this a long time. And in my, in my view, investors and buyers have two emotions and two emotions only, fear and greed. And they vacillate between fear and greed. And you want them late in the process to feel fear, fear that they're going to lose that deal. And once they, once they feel that, that fear of losing the opportunity You'll quickly figure out what their uh, what their highest price is. Yeah, I see a lot of uh, gosh. There's you know you're, it, you you lose you lose your leverage in a deal like pretty fast, mm-hmm. right? Or you can, and if and, and if you if you haven't been 
savvy and smart about what, what you were negotiating or think you've negotiated, you, the deal you ultimately get might not be what you thought at all. Yeah. Well, we're, what we are finding, we're finding um, a couple of things in, in the market today. One is um, if you think, if you go and you get eight bids on a company, if you think about it in a bell curve, three, four years ago, all the bids would be kind of right in the middle of that bell curve, meaning that all be pretty similar. What we're finding in today's market is you're going to find one that's on the right-hand tail of the bell curve. You're going to find a couple that are on the left-hand tail. The bids are much more dispersed along, you know, along the, along the bell curve. So that's, that's, that's number one. And number two is we're finding that, you know, we'll get the initial bids and inevitably the final bid is 15 to 20% higher than the initial bid as, as you negotiate and you put pressure on them. Right. Plus there's other terms that you, you, you want to negotiate like, Hey, how, what's the post-closing liability? Ab- absolutely. How long am I going to have to worry? And, and, and we tell our, our clients that that prices is uh, important, but those other terms are so just important. as important. Those could be, they're like lawyer terms, but there's economic, there had like such severe uh, economic absolutely. consequences. Absolutely. And, and that's why we, we work closely with the lawyers on the deal. We're trying to maximize the upside. The lawyers are minimizing the downside. And that minimizing the downside of a deal is as important as maximizing the upside. It's critical. Yeah, I always tell my, I, I say this glibly, but I do think a lot of the unsolicited bids are just, um, they're frequently just people looking for a steal. Bargain yeah, shoppers. Absolutely. I'm a bargain shopper. Absolutely. I'm going to go throw some low bids out and see what comes yeah, in. Yeah, that happens all the time. It's like, I mean, it's getting to Mike's point. I mean, you could, if you stumble upon somebody, you Willing to sell it at a bargain price. Absolutely. Great. Then you've done great. Um, but we represent the seller. I understand. Yeah, no, no, yeah, exactly. That's why they need to call. Yeah, and, and uh, it's great for the buyer, but um, typically the buyers do this for a living. They've done many deals. They know what they're doing. Exactly. Whereas a seller does it one or two or maybe three times if they're very, very fortunate maybe, in their career. Maybe. So frequently the sellers are just, they're really, they just been to really maybe just this is their first time. Exactly. It's and it's just hard. If you've never been through a process before, how do you know what to expect? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you're sitting across the table from somebody who's done this 40, 50, 100 right. times. Exactly. And they literally, they know, they know every play in the playbook. They've played. They're, they're playing chess. Play yeah, they're playing the chess. Yeah. yeah. And they, they just know what to push on, you know, how to get what they want, what yeah. they want. Yeah. So it's, it's, that's, it sounds like you're in a really fun business, actually. Just, just we, we like what we do every day. Um, we deal with, with great, great business owners and that's half the fun, right? And what we do, what we tell people is, look, you spent your, your last 10 years, your life or generations of your family building this business. And when you go to monetize it, you're, you're, you're really taking everything you've done in 10, 20, 30, 40 years and, and condensing it down to one event and you need to maximize that event. And it's neat. It's neat because, um, we're helping individuals and families, you know, create generational wealth in, right. in, in many instances. And that's, uh, it's rewarding and it's fun. Yeah. That sounds like a really, really fun time. Yeah. And so well, thanks. We, this, we should probably wrap up soon, but unless Joey, unless you have another question, because that was, it was a good kind of a spot to, to yeah, well, Michael, so on. people, people need to get a hold of you. They can, uh, they can find you on the internet at, uh, Michael Butler, Cascadia Capital. Yeah, yeah, M Butler at CascadiaCapital.com. There you go. M Butler at CascadiaCapital.com. And, uh, I'm sure, um, 
every business owner out there ought to be thinking about because you, I mean, granted, many times you start not thinking about selling a business, but frankly, no matter how exciting the business is, once you run the thing for seven to 10 years, <laughs> you're going to want to sell it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so you really, I mean, it's, that's just life. I mean, you, you've got like, uh, you've got like maybe three or four, seven to 10 year chunks in your life to chase something. Exactly. And, and you can, you can chase dramatically different things in each of those seven to 10 year periods. Mm-hmm. Anyway, super great to have, it, have you on the show. Wonderful. I, I appreciate uh, being on. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. This was great. And everyone, thanks for listening. We'll see you all next week.